Well, this morning I'd, I'd like to begin by reading our text for today, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. <clears throat> Matthew 15, starting in verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Well, this is somewhat of an unusual story about a woman's great faith. She's a Canaanite woman, a Gentile, from Tyre and Sidon area where Israel's ancient enemies were. They were Canaanites. And I think this story makes us uncomfortable. At least it made me a little bit uncomfortable this week. Initially, Jesus doesn't even answer this woman. Then he tells her that he was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And actually, he doesn't even really directly tell her that. He only says that to his disciples, likely in her hearing. And then he compares her to a dog. Now, it's in a parable which might soften it somewhat, but there's really no way around this. Jesus compares Israel to children the casting out of a demon to giving the children bread and doing so for the Gentiles like giving that bread to the dogs. Now earlier, Jesus had said in Matthew 7 and verse 6, He said, do not give what is ho- do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. And, and of course there, dogs represents people, pigs represent people, but but in that case that Jesus wasn't talking to or about a particular person, and so it's maybe a little softer there. Now, dogs and pigs were people who refused our help as we tried to observe Jesus' commandment in the Sermon on the Mount, if you'll remember that section. But here Jesus refers to the Gentiles just generally as dogs. And that was The common way of thinking about the Gentiles in the ancient Near East, they were dogs in Israel's sight. To be fair, the the Jews were dogs in the Gentile sight. And I think it's really difficult for us as as kind of 21st century believers to really enter into the racial and cultural animosity that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews thought the Gentiles were abominable. They were unclean, they ate unclean food, they practiced all kinds of wicked depravity, they were outside the covenant people of God, and, and, and frankly, they were dogs. 
Even Jesus' disciples had problems when, when the gospel was to go forth to the Gentiles. And, and so in the initial stages of the, the mission, the Great Commission, go to all nations and make disciples of all the nations, there was this, this hesitancy about them as they went to Samaria and then to the Gentiles. Even Peter needed a threefold vision in Acts chapter 10 before he was ready to go to a Gentile's house, to the house of Cornelius, the centurion, to preach the gospel to him. And when Peter told the story of, of Cornelius's conversion in Acts chapter 11, those who heard these things fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. That was Acts 11 and verse 18. Now Matthew's gospel seems to be directed towards Jewish believers. Matthew doesn't explain Jewish customs in the way that Mark and, and Luke find necessary. He expects his readers to understand these things. And one of the things Matthew does as we kind of progress through this gospel that again is written to Jewish believers is he begins to, to let us see that this gospel is meant to go to all nations, that it's also meant for the Gentiles. You see, as much as we might struggle to see Jesus imply that the Gentiles were dogs, for a Jew in Matthew's day, it would have been equally a struggle to believe that their Messiah would have interacted with a Jewish woman. Even for with Jesus to withdraw to Gentile territory is, is really something else, something kind of unheard of. Most Jews would avoid Gentile land if at all possible. And, and when they would come back into their own country, they would, they would shake off the dust from their clothing to kind of rid themselves of the defilement of the pagan world around them. Now, in this gospel up to this point, Jesus was rejected by the religious establishment and he began teaching in parables. Then you remember he withdrew to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to kind of be alone for a while. And then the crowds followed him and in compassion, he healed them and he fed them. And then he walked on water to get to the other side of the lake to withdraw back to the west side again. And a crowd formed there as well and he healed them. Then the Pharisees and the scribes from Jerusalem found him and they confronted him and, and, uh, and he confronted them back and taught them that external things are not what defiles a person, but what defiles are sins of the heart. And so now he withdraws again. He's, he's trying to get away from the crowds and this time he goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon. He goes to Gentile territory, not maybe to those cities, but to the territory of those cities. And what we see from this is that Jesus is not worried that the Gentiles are going to make him unclean. Last week we saw that he declared all food unclean, and now he's, he's beginning to show that even all people are clean, or at least that they can be made clean through salvation. Now up to this point already we've We've seen that Gentiles have played a prominent role in this gospel. In the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in chapter 1, Matthew included a, included a few women. In chapter 1 and verse 3, we hear about Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Tamar was a Canaanite. 
In verse 5 of chapter 1, it, and it, it continues, and, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, uh, Sal, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Rahab was also a Canaanite, and Ruth was a Moabite. Then in chapter 2, when, when Jesus was born, remember who came to worship him? It was the Magi or the wise men from the East. They would have been Gentiles. And so the early first worshipers of the Lord Jesus were the Gentiles. And one of the first miracles we saw in Matthew chapter 8, Jesus healed the servant of a centurion. Again, he would have been a Gentile. Now that centurion, um, and in fact, why don't you turn over to, to Matthew chapter 8, that centurion thought of himself as unworthy to have Jesus enter his house, and that was really the common tradition is that a Jew would not enter a Gentile's house. And so in Matthew 8 and verse 8, a little bit through that verse there, it's, he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. If you skip over to verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then in verse 13, and this, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now this miracle in chapter 8 and the miracle in our text are, are really the only times that Jesus heals someone at a distance. They're the only times that Jesus refers to someone as having great faith or in chapter 8 here, such faith. And both of these involve Gentiles, really very similar stories in many respects. They're Gentiles, they're healed at a distance, and Jesus comments on the, the extent of their faith. Now in the rest of chapter 15, it's going to involve miracles among the Gentiles. Jesus was going to heal people on the mountain beside the Sea of Galilee, but it seems there in chapter 15, verse 30, that, that he's still in Gentile territory. It says there in verse 30, and great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and they, they put him, they put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and note this last phrase, and they glorified the God of Israel. Again, I think, I think he's in Gentile territory here, even though it says earlier that he was by the Sea of Galilee. Then beginning in verse 32, Jesus is going to feed 4,000 in very much the same way that he fed the 5,000 in chapter 14. And even all the way into chapter 16, Jesus is still north of Galilee in Caesarea Philippi, Gentile territory. Look at Matthew 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? <clears throat> now, a journey from Galilee to Tyre, that was about 25 miles. It was another 25 miles from Tyre north along the coast to Sidon. And this is a journey then that would have taken maybe a few months. 
to go from Tyre to Sidon area, then over all the way to Caesarea Philippi, and to do the miracles that Jesus did, probably a, a few months of his ministry was spent in this Gentile territory. And Jesus is going to do in this Gentile area what he did, or at least some of what he did in Israel. He's going to heal, he's going to cast out demons, he's going to feed people out of compassion. But he recognizes, at least in our text, he recognizes that he was sent specifically to Israel. And so he's not going to tell these Gentiles, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he likely is going to call those who he interacts with to repent, but he doesn't offer them the kingdom. That was for Israel. Now one other thing as we kind of get into this here is, is I want you to turn back to Matthew chapter 11 and verse 21. You remember Matthew 11.21, he began to, in verse 20, denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And he says in verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And so even though Jesus will do some mighty works near Tyre and Sidon, he's not going to do exactly what he did. He's not going to do the same extent of miracles as he did in Chorazin and Bethsaida. And so what's happening then in our text is there's a, a contrast here. Jesus did most of his mighty works in Galilee among his own people, but they rejected him. They, for the most part, didn't believe. But here comes this Gentile woman with great faith. Now, to this point, the disciples, they've been referred to as having little faith, but this woman has great faith. And so the Gentiles, who who we might otherwise view as sinful worshipers of false God, they become an example of great faith. And, and by doing that, they become a rebuke to the disobedient nation of Israel. And perhaps for us, as we're kind of in this New Covenant age, New Testament age, perhaps it'll give us some hope as we go to the nations with the gospel to make disciples that that there are some of them who are going to repent and believe. And so what we're going to see this morning as we get into our text is we're going to see an example of great faith. What does faith look like? How does faith function? Faith is important for us because we are saved by faith. Faith is the instrument that God uses to save us from our sins, from death, and from hell. And faith is also a big part of our growth in the Christian life. You know, in in men's ministry this past week, we talked about the fight of faith, kind of following J.C. Ryle on, on the fight of faith, our spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's a fight that is fought by faith. And we're going to live for the Lord in this world in proportion to our faith. And so we we need to look at this great faith and and see this great faith. And and we're going to do so under two very simple headings this morning. First, we're going to look at the demonstration of great faith. The demonstration of great faith. And we're going to see this interaction between Jesus and the woman. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the application of of this whole thing to ourselves. And this is going to be kind of like a, a bit of a, a Puritan style sermon in, in the sense of, 
of the William Perkins style in, w- in which we kind of draw out the doctrine from the text. And then we're going to bring forth some uses or some application as we seek to apply it, apply what this text says to ourselves. And so let's go first of all here and let's, let's look at the demonstration of great faith. And we're going to see this in four stages here. I've got four subheadings in your, in your text there or in your little outline sheets. There's kind of four rounds to this debate, if we can think about it as a, a de- debate between Jesus and the woman. First, she says in verse 22, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but Jesus doesn't respond. That's kind of stage one. Then stage two, she continues crying out so that the disciples begin to intercede on her behalf. And Jesus responds to them again, likely in her hearing. Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The the third stage is in verse 25. She kneels before the Lord asking for help. And he replies in verse 26, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Her reply is the fourth stage and, and then Jesus grants her request. And so again, we're going to have kind of four subheadings here. A, the request and the silence in verse 21 and to 23, the first part of 23. Then we're going to see the continuation and the mission in verse 23 and 24. The worship and the good in verses 25 and 26, and then the response and the answer in verses 27 and 28. So first of all, the request and the silence. Now we really already covered verse 21. Jesus went away from there, again from the area of Gennesaret where he healed the crowds and where he had that confrontation with the Pharisees about what makes somebody unclean. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And so this is the, the third time that Jesus is withdrawing, trying to get away from the crowds to give his disciples some rest. Verse 22, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now this crying that she was doing is a, it's a very strong word. It's often used for screaming or shrieking. And, and so she's yelling, have mercy. Just, this would be a very intense kind of a, a, a cry out that this woman was doing. And it seems that, that she's still a ways away at this point. She's, she's far away from Jesus and she's, she's yelling from afar. In verse 25, it, it says that she came And so here she's probably still at some distance away. Now this is as good a place as any here to to say that that Matthew just isn't going to tell us nearly what we want to know about this story. Uh, You know, and and I think if we've been kind of studying Matthew for a while, we're used to this, but I think we need to remind ourselves of this here. Matthew just focuses on what he focuses on and he leaves out the rest. And his focus is not on this woman or on her story or on Jesus or his answers to the woman. Matthew's only focus seems to be on this woman as an example of great faith. Maybe there's a a secondary focus here on her as a woman and as a Gentile, but, but Matthew's just focused on this great faith and he wants us to see the extent of her faith and he really doesn't tell us very much else. You know, Matthew is clearly not telling the story for the story's sake. 
Otherwise, he would include so much more about the, the details of what's happening here. You know, how does this Canaanite woman know that Jesus can cast out demons? How did she find out that Jesus was in the area? How does she know that Jesus was son of David? How does she know to call him Lord? We, we don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. Now, we know as readers of Matthew that, that Jesus is son of David because of the genealogy in chapter 1 and because of what the angel said to Joseph in chapter 1 and verse 20. He called Joseph son of David. And in chapter 9, verse 27, the, the two blind men that Jesus healed called Jesus son of David. In chapter 12 and verse 23, the people asked, can this be the son of David? And of course, son of David is, is the terminology for the Messiah, the promised king of David, uh, or the promised son of David who would be king, who would rule from David's throne and fulfill the promises of God to Israel and to the world. And so this is a, a messianic title. Now, this woman somehow knows that Jesus is son of David. Matthew doesn't tell us how. But what Israel stubbornly refused to see, she saw and believed. And she also calls Jesus Lord here. Now, whether she means Lord in the fullest sense of Yahweh in human flesh, or whether she's just using it in the polite sense where, like, we might say, sir, it's hard to know for sure, because again, Matthew just doesn't exactly tell us. But in any case, we've, we've seen without a doubt already that Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is Lord in that fullest sense. And so at the very least, we can, we can kind of see the picture of the fullness there in her words, even if she didn't understand exactly what she was saying there. And so we see more than the woman might have seen, but we can't be totally sure how far she meant it when she said, Lord. Now she also asks for mercy. And she recognizes that she doesn't deserve anything when she asks for mercy. She wants compassion. She wants mercy. She wants pity. She's in need and for her daughter's sake, but, but she knows that she doesn't deserve the help that she's seeking. And so she asked the Lord, the son of David, for mercy on behalf of her daughter. And her daughter, look at verse 22, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Now, severely there is literally badly. And it could be that the, the demon was particularly a wicked demon, that he was a, a bad demon or, or whatever was happening in this case was particularly bad. You know, we've seen people through this gospel, we've seen demons make people mute, we've seen demons make people blind, we've seen demon-possessed people who were fierce, so fierce that nobody could go on the highway near where they were living in the tombs. And this daughter, whatever her symptoms were, she had it bad. And this is the only time there's a an, an extra description like this, an adjective describing the demon possession in any kind of way, usually people are just demonized and they're maybe blind or they're demonized and they, they, they're mute or they're demonized and they're fierce. But in this case, this person is badly demonized, severely demonized, extremely demonized, depending on your translation. Now, up to this point in the gospel, Jesus has healed every single person that has come to him. But here, he doesn't even answer this woman. Look at verse 23, but he did not answer her a word. Now, this is unusual. 
And you, you can't help but think, at least I think that you can't help but think, that, that Jesus is simply drawing out her great faith. But Matthew, again, he just he gives us nothing about what Jesus is thinking here. He doesn't tell us anything about G- what Jesus was trying to do. He just gives us the bare facts that test this woman's faith so that we can come out and see the extent of it. And so Jesus doesn't answer her a word. He just, he just ignores her. And so that was the request and the silence. Secondly, B, in your outline, let's see the continuation and the mission. This is stage two of their debate, stage two of their interaction, the continuation and the mission, the rest of verse 23 and 24. This woman continues. She doesn't give up. She doesn't get discouraged. She believes Jesus is Lord, son of David, and that he can help her, help her daughter. And so in spite of the silence she that she receives, she continues crying out. In verse 23, it says, And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. Now the woman must have been incessant. Because it seems to have begun to, to bother the disciples. And, and they began asking, they, they began or they, they were asking the Lord to do something. And there's a, a continuous past tense here. They're, they're begging him, they're asking him, or, or they begin asking him to send this lady away. And so they're, they're continually asking the Lord. They keep asking. The ESV translates it stronger as, as begging, I think because of the, the continual sense there. And, and they said, send her away. Now they might have meant by this, stop ignoring her and, and tell her to go away. Like, like send her away. Get, get her out of here. Kind of a non-compassionate kind of view on that one. They, they might have just, you know, Lord, Lord, get rid of this woman. Or they might have meant by this, grant her her request so that she goes away. Because sometimes that word send away means to send somebody away in a sense that they're, they're sent away satisfied. But either way, whatever they're asking, they want Jesus to deal with this situation because she's now crying out after them. And the sense here is, is that she's literally behind them, following them, crying out. She's, she's coming after them and she's calling out. And so she, it seems that there's still this distance between her and Jesus at this point. Now, the way that Jesus replies makes me lean towards the idea that the disciples meant cast out the demon and, and get rid of this woman by, by granting her her request, get her out of our hair by, by answering because Jesus replies to them that this is not his mission. Again, verse 24, he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he's saying, I was, I was not sent to the Gentiles. My mission is to Israel. Israel are the lost sheep. I was sent to offer them the kingdom. You know, in the words of Paul, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And so Jesus is letting this woman know, I think she would have been able to hear this as well, he's letting this woman know that his mission does not include the Gentiles. He was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But that wouldn't stop her either. And so she continues, again, this is the third stage of their interaction, see the worship and the good, verses 25 and 26. Verse 25, 
But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. Now the word knelt here is another one of these times. On the one hand, it can simply mean to kneel. It can mean to, to bow before somebody in a respectful way, but often it means more. It means to kneel down or bow down in worship. And Matthew has, has very often, in fact, maybe we could say even almost always used it in that sense, although there's, there's a few times where, where there's doubt. But that's very likely the sense again here. You know, she, she calls Jesus Lord, she asks for help, and she bows down, and, and likely in, a, in an act of worship, she bows down and worships the Lord. And again, she calls him Lord and asks for help. But once again, he implies that he won't help her. He says in verse 26, And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. It's not right, he says. It's not good would be another translation. It's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Israel are the children. They're the lost sheep. The Gentiles are the dogs. And and if we want to think about it in the metaphor, they are the enemy of the sheep. And what is good is to feed the children their bread. And what is not good is to give it to the dogs. Jesus had come to do miracles and cast out demons among the children of Israel, not to do the same for the Gentiles. And here again is, is where we might wish that Matthew had told us more. You know, some, some commentators speculate that, that maybe Jesus said this with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face, and you know how that could kind of soften the whole thing. Others see this as, as quite harsh, quite sharp, quite offensive. But Matthew just, he just simply doesn't tell us. All he wants us to see is the obstacles to faith that Jesus put in her way. And he doesn't give us really much else to go on. Now, I think that Jesus must have intended to heal her daughter in the end, even, even though we can't be dogmatic about that. I think Jesus was testing her faith or stretching it to the full so that, that it could be on full display. He wanted his disciples to see her faith on display, and Matthew wants us to see this faith on display. Now, there's two further things that, that we need to kind of enter into here. One is, um, dogs are viewed much differently in the ancient Near East than we view them today. In verse 27, the woman is going to picture dogs that eat crumbs from the table. And, and when we think about that, we kind of picture these nice little inside dogs that some of you have, these, these non-shedding dogs that, that eat from the, the master's table. And there's a good boy and that kind of a thing. That, that's, that's not really what's going on here. There was such a thing as, as inside dogs to some extent at this time, but even the tables were, were outside, and so we shouldn't picture a nice, clean, inside dog that's, that's like the, you know, the man's best friend here. The dog was an unclean animal. And so that's kind of the first thing that we need to consider. Secondly, is that the, the Bible seems to have less of a problem picturing someone as a dog then, you know, I don't know about you, but then, then I do for sure. You know, I just, I, I was, I was talking to, to Lauren and Will the other day and we were talking about some people that left our church and they're maybe offended about this or that. And I just said, you know, imagine if we called them dogs. Like just, it just wouldn't go well. You know, imagine, imagine if I called any woman a dog. It's just, it's just not going to go. It's just not, 
It's not appropriate in our culture in North America to do that, but the Bible seems to have less of a problem with that than I do, and so maybe it's just because I'm Canadian or, or whatever, but so on the one hand, dogs are worse than you think. On the other hand, hey, we can, we can call somebody a dog, apparently, according to Scripture. Now, we already saw that, that Jesus described people as pigs and dogs in Matthew chapter 7, a context, by the way, where in that context, he's actually saying, don't, don't judge. And then he says, don't, don't, you know, don't give what's holy to the dogs. Don't, don't cast your pearls before the pigs. Paul spoke about false teachers as dogs. Philippians chapter three, verse two, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Perhaps even more significant, the Holy Spirit says in Revelation 22, 15, verse 14 says, Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. And then verse 15 says, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so outside of the heavenly city, outside of the new Jerusalem are the dogs and the evildoers, the liars, the idolaters, those who worship false gods. And so did you catch those two things? On the one hand, dogs are probably worse than 21st century Christians think. And on the other hand, scripture speaks of unbelievers, false teachers, and those who would resist the gospel as dogs. And as I've been thinking about it this week, you know, I think the way to come to terms with this, if, if you're ready for this, I think the way to come to terms to this is to recognize that you're a dog and I'm a dog. You're a dog and I'm a dog. We are sinners in God's world. And unless we're cleansed and made holy by the blood of Jesus Christ, we will remain outside of the heavenly city. Again, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers, and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. And so we are all unclean dogs. And Jesus, on this occasion, he he really, he just puts this woman in her place. She's not part of Israel. She's a stranger to the covenants of promise. She has no claim on Israel's Messiah. She is a dog. She's on the outside. And in that sense, all of us Gentiles are dogs. Now today, the good news for us is that the gospel is for us. The gospel is to make disciples of all the nations and to go to the Gentiles. And and this is a a message for the Jew and for the Gentiles. But in that historical setting, in, in the time frame that we're looking at in Matthew's gospel... What Jesus was doing at that point was for Israel and, and largely for Israel alone. But this woman is amazing when you think about it. She really is amazing. She doesn't get offended. She doesn't get angry. She's the only person that I'm aware of that ever wins an argument with the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody else ever gets something out of the Lord in this kind of a way where where at the end he just allows her to win this argument. And so it's really an amazing thing if we can think about it that way. She just owns it in humility. She just owns it. She just, yes, I'm a dog. 
I'm a dog and I deserve the wrath of God, but even the dogs lick the crumbs from the, from the, the, the children's bread. What humility that she has. What, what faith that she has. And I, I call this D, the response and the answer. Again, look at her response in verse 27. She said, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And so first she agrees. Yes. Yes, it's right. Yes, the children should get the bread. Yes, that's exactly right. The children should, of course, the children should get the bread. Of course, it wouldn't be good to throw the children's bread to the dog. She agrees. And we're reminded then again of her plea for mercy, for pity. She knows that she deserves nothing. And she embraces the title of dog. She agrees with the Lord that she's a sinner, that she's a dog, that she deserves nothing. And all of us must do that. All of us must recognize where we stand before a holy God. And then she picks up on the bread. She's a, she's a, a pretty quick-witted woman, I think. She picks up on the bread. She agrees. The bread's for the children. Okay, Lord, the bread's for the children. But I'm not asking for the children's bread. I just, I'm just asking for the crumbs. I just want the, the crumbs that those kids spill off the table. And here's where we see her great faith. She thinks casting this demon, this bad demon from her daughter, she thinks of it as only a crumb. It's, it's not hard for the Lord. It's not hard for the Lord. It's just a, it's just a crumb. It's, it's gonna take, it's not gonna take any bread away from Israel. It's simply a crumb from the table. And, and Jesus sees this response and he acknowledges her great faith. He answered her in verse 28. Oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus responds with high praise for this woman's faith. He either changes his mind in response to her faith or, or more likely, I think, that he does what he was going to do all along for her. He was just stretching her and, and drawing out her great faith so that it could be put on display. He brought her to a place where the fullness of her faith could be expressed and then she responded, then he responded to that faith. And that's often the way that the Lord does it with us. He, he stretches us. He, he brings us into situations and, and, and circumstances where we need to trust Him despite how everything looks. And He does that to, to show our faith, to, to give Him glory as we respond to Him and believe in who He is. And so he brought her to the, this place where the fullness of her faith could be expressed and then he responded to that faith. And we could compare this maybe to Peter's faith. It wasn't very many weeks ago that we looked at Peter's faith as he walked on the water ever so briefly. In Peter's face, in, in Peter's case, the Lord had commanded him to, to come onto the water. And so Peter's faith was with the Lord's encouragement, come. And Peter came on the water. But hers was against the Lord's encouragement. The Lord seemingly discouraged her, but she never wavered. Peter saw the wind and the waves and he doubted. But she just kept her eyes on the Lord, even when he made it seem like he would do nothing for her. You remember Jesus said to Peter, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Whereas Jesus said to the woman, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And through each stage of this story, the woman continued to look to the Lord for what she desired despite the discouragements. Jesus was silent. She tried again. Jesus said, my mission is Israel. She didn't give up. Jesus said, it's not good to give bread to to the dogs. And she agrees and asks for a crumb. Now, we need a faith like this. We need a, a great faith. And so let's kind of seek to apply this to ourselves. The, this is number two in your outline. I called it the application of great faith. And I think as we begin into this section, I think there's ways that we could glean from this woman's faith. And there's also ways that we would or could do this incorrectly. And so we need to be careful how we think about this. But this is here for as an example for us. Matthew recognizes that discipleship is by faith. And so he wants us to see this woman's faith and he wants us to kind of take this in for ourselves. He wants to challenge us with this woman's faith. Now, the greatness of her faith was not in trying to convince Jesus to do something that he didn't want to do. Faith isn't a, a magic ticket to get what we want out of God and, and even against his will. That's not the way that faith works. The greatness of her faith was in continuing to believe despite the discouragements. She never gave up. She never turned away. Now, faith is also not what cast the demon out of her daughter, right? Faith didn't have any power in and of itself. Faith brought her to Jesus and Jesus healed her daughter. Faith is is what looks to the object of faith and Jesus is the object of faith. Faith comes to Jesus and asks him to help. But faith in itself is really nothing. It, It simply trusts another. And so her faith was in trusting Jesus, looking to Jesus, asking Jesus, coming to him. We make a great mistake when we look to faith as if it has some great power. Now, I I called this sermon the example and the power of faith. And and there is a certain power in faith as we trust the Lord to work. And as we we kind of continue to cling to him despite the discouragement, there there is a, a power to that. But the power of faith and the power of the work is really the Lord's work Faith is simply the, the instrument or the means or the, the way that we trust the Lord to do his work. And so faith has no power in and of itself. And we make a great mistake when we look to faith as if it itself is some great power. Faith is simply the open hands that looks to the Lord and says, I can't do this, Lord, but you can. God saves us through faith for precisely that reason because faith can take no credit. We read about that in Romans 3 this morning. Faith can take no credit. The woman said, I can do nothing. I deserve nothing, but you can. And and that's also what we must do in our faith. We come to the Lord and we say, we can't do it, Lord. I don't deserve it, Lord, but you can. And I'm looking to you to do it because you've told me in your word that these are the kinds of things that you do. And so for simplicity's sake here, we're going to cover, actually my notes say we're going to cover two areas as we th- seek to apply this great faith, the area of salvation and the area of sanctification. But I think I'm going to add also f- a third area of our service for the Lord, areas that we need to have faith. And so 
We need to have faith for salvation. We need to have faith for sanctification. That's for our, our growth in the Christian life. It's for becoming more and more like Christ in this world. And then thirdly, for our service. And so faith is believing God. Faith is believing God as revealed in his word. And faith is something that God works in us by his grace. It's a gift of God. And so faith is one of those things in Scripture that is, is both our responsibility, it's something that, that we are called to do, but it's also something that God works in us. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. And so God works faith in our hearts through His Word. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit, to work faith in our hearts through the Word. The Holy Spirit works through the Word to make us understand, and He makes us certain of what God says there so that we believe. Now, when it comes to salvation, here's how faith works. We see in the Word, we see a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this Savior, Jesus Christ, who died to save sinners, who paid the penalty for sin, who made propitiation, who bore God's wrath, who loves us with a great love. And we see ourselves in that same word as sinners, as worthy of wrath, as those who need forgiveness and and who need to be made righteous. And so we see in Jesus a Savior who perfectly meets our needs. And we see the promises to save all who come to him. We see his love for us. We see his compassion and we take him at his word. And we come with open hands and we come with nothing but our sin and we entrust ourselves to him. We trust him to save our souls and to deliver us from the wrath of God. We trust him to make us righteous in God's sight. We trust him to do exactly what he said he would do in our salvation. And so we entrust all of who we are to all of who he is. And so our faith is simply to cling to him in this way. And so that would be great faith in the area of salvation, just simply trusting what the Word of God says, trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to do what He says He will do, and to come to Him, and even trusting Him as we come to Him, that He will help us to do that in the way that He wants. And now what about sanctification? What about our ongoing discipleship and growth and progress in following Jesus? To make it really simple here, we, we simply in sanctification, to have faith in sanctification, which is necessary part of sanctification, we simply take God's word, we understand it, we believe it, and we apply it to our lives. And so we could ask, does God tell us in his, in his word that he is working in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure? Philippians 2.13. Well, then we believe it and we trust him to change our hearts and our wills and our actions. We trust that God is working in us and that he is renewing us and, and changing our desires and, and somehow miraculously by the Holy Spirit transforming us into the image of Christ. We simply trust him to do what he says he will do in his word. And does he tell us in the verse before that that we must obey him in this process? He does. Philippians 2 and verse 12. Well, then we must obey him and seek to live out his good pleasure as revealed in his word. 
Well, does he tell us to love him and be devoted to him and to serve him? He does, Matthew 6, 24. Does he tell us that he will reward our service for him in this life? And does he tell us to lay up treasures in heaven and to be eternally minded? He does, Matthew 6, 19 to 21. Well, then we need to believe him and, and do that. We need to serve him and love him and be devoted to him and lay up our treasure in heaven and live for eternity. And so we believe him according to his word and we do what he says and we fight the good fight of faith and we don't give up no matter how difficult it is. First Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, there's so much that God says in this book. You know, it tells us about God. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us who He is, and it tells us what He will do for us. It tells us about who we are and what we need, and it gives us His very great and precious promises, according to 1 Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Precious and very great promises that are, will enable us to live by faith in ways that are pleasing to God. By faith, we take hold of these promises in His Word and we take hold of God and by His grace, we are sanctified and we grow to be like Christ. By faith, we continue to persevere in these things. Even if it's two steps forward and one step backward, faith says we just continue to follow the Lord in this life. Great faith with Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I think that's the idea. And of course, any blessing that we look for again needs to be according to the word of God. And it's really the same in the area of service. You know, I think very often I think about planting this church and, and, and establishing a church and we think about it. We think this is the kind of thing the Lord does. I will build my church. And faith just says, you know what? Despite the difficulties, despite what we see with our eyes, despite the trials, despite all that, that might seem like things aren't going to happen, we're going to trust the Lord and do what He says, and we're going to trust that He's going to glorify Himself through this church, through our service to Him, whatever that is. And so great faith just simply takes God at His word and trusts Him and perseveres. No matter how it looks outwardly, we, we continue to trust and believe the word of God. And when we do that, we will see God do great things for His people. And so we need to study God's word that we might grow in the knowledge of God and the knowledge of Christ and grow in the grace of being conformed into His image. We need to know this word if we're going to believe it. And that's great faith for salvation, for sanctification, and for our service. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this example of, of faith. And Father, we pray that you would, would strengthen our faith, that you would grow our faith. We pray that you would make us from a, a people of little faith into a, a people of great faith like this woman. We thank you for her example, Father, and we just, we pray that you would help us to take you at your word, to trust you, to believe you, because we know that you are glorified when your people trust you, when your people believe you, because we know, Father, that you are no liar, you are true, and all of your promises are true. We thank you for that.
In Jesus' name, amen.